0: The extent to which anti-establishmentarianism, is that the word? That is the word, right?
1: I think so. I struggle. I struggle to pronounce it. I
0: love <laughs> how much play that word is
2: getting during this podcast. Isn't that like the long, like the longest word or something? I don't know. <laughs> in, in the some, English language? So yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Please help us find a pithier way to say that.
2: Anti-disestablishmentarianism. Isn't that the longest Wait, word what? in the English language? Yeah, I think that is the longest one. Yeah, that, But anti-establishmentarianism yeah, no. is <laughs> still a word, right? It better be. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the 5:38 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Dwork. Last week, as expected, Senate Democrats' push to eliminate the filibuster for voting legislation failed. Joe Manchin and Kyrsten Sinema were the only two Democratic holdouts. While their decision to buck their party has party members frustrated, their position isn't entirely unique. During Trump's presidency, Republicans failed to repeal the Affordable Care Act because of just three defectors in the Senate and during Obama's presidency, a public opinion was dropped from the ACA because of just one significant defector. Today, we're gonna talk about why senators and other high-profile politicians buck their parties and what the consequences usually are. We're also gonna take a look at why more amateur candidates are running for office in recent years. This year, celebrity candidates like Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker are getting attention for their Senate runs. And of course, Trump is the prime example of someone who never held public office being a successful politician. But the uptick in amateur candidates isn't just confined to the Republican Party. We've also got a good or bad use of polling example from President Biden's press conference last week. So here with me to discuss it all, our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah.
1: Hey, Galen. Hey, y'all.
2: Also here with us is managing editor Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hello, Galen. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, as always. And also here with us is elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. So let's dive right in. We've got a lot to cover on the show today, starting with Biden's press conference last week. So Biden held his 10th press conference as president last Wednesday, marking his first year in office. He's held significantly fewer press conferences compared to his recent predecessors. So presidents dating back to Bush Sr., including Trump, have held an average of 20 or more press conferences per year. Biden's conference was long. It lasted almost two hours and included all kinds of commentary about Biden's first year in office. A couple of the things that made news were a gaffe about Russia and Ukraine and acknowledgments that he was too optimistic about bipartisanship. But one particular moment caught our attention, and it's today's good use or bad use of polling example. Take a listen.
1: How do you plan to win back moderates and independents who cast a ballot for you in 2020, but polls indicate aren't happy with the way you're doing your job now? I don't believe the polls.
2: All right, folks, is this a good or bad use of polling? Sarah, kick us off.
1: Bad. (laughs) Very bad.
2: Very, very bad. Agree. Tremendously bad. Okay. What if Biden is like maybe many of the Americans who have lost faith in polling over the past several years? I don't know. (laughs) Is there any saving grace to this use of polling?
1: You're hitting on something that people do say, Galen. I don't think, though, that's what Biden meant here. It was actually something you flagged internally in our Slack that, you know, it was easier for him to say, I don't believe the polls, than to answer the question, which was, how will he win back independents who voted for him but disapprove of his performance now? And as Jeffrey has written for the site, independence and Biden's support among them has been a long-standing issue. Starting in March, April, there was already a dip in support among them, and it's steadily gotten worse. And he didn't really answer the question.
2: So you're saying basically maybe agreeing with my suggestion that in this case, even if it ruffles some feathers in the press, it's easier for Biden to just ignore the evidence and not answer the question than actually try to answer why he's done so poorly with independents during his time in office so far or how he might win those independents back.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems as if he was caught off guard and just went with the easy answer versus having thought through maybe a a more thoughtful answer on how he would do that. You know, I'm not a political strategist, but I would have thought maybe given that this is a longstanding problem, he would have had some possible solutions he could give as president about like, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, but he didn't do that. And I think instead just kind of gave a defiant, I've got a plan that isn't a plan, but the polls are wrong.
2: So this drew some comparisons to Trump online. He would just say, you know, ignore the polls or ignore the news that, you know, is negative. Only pay attention to what I'm saying.
0: Do you think those comparisons are accurate? I don't think Trump should be the comparison. I think Trump should be the context. Like, there are a couple different ways to look at this. One is lots of politicians discount polls, either because they're leading in the polls, but they don't want their voters to get complacent. So, you know, this is like a week before an election, a candidate will say, we're not worried about the polls, this is a close race, you, you know, turn out and vote. So there's a long history in politics of candidates and politicians waving aside the polls. The difference now is we live in this era where there's been a sustained attack on evidence, expertise, our ability to sort of know anything, our ability to have a shared set of facts. And I think in that context, Biden saying, I don't believe the polls, which, look, I don't know what's in Biden's heart or mind, but I bet and I bet a lot that he does believe the polls, that sure, Biden, like a lot of other people, probably Biden more than most people, in fact, is aware of polling's shortcomings and how inexact it can be. But in that same press conference, Biden was talking about how big parts of his agenda are super popular with the American people, that's based on polling. So I don't for one second think Biden doesn't believe the polls. I think it's what Sarah said. It's just that's a hard question to answer with a real answer. He probably should have had like a political answer. And in our current context, I think it was an irresponsible answer.
1: Yeah, because, you know, not only, as Micah was saying, did Biden go on and kind of mention the popularity of different parts of his agenda, but he also said that every president has kind of struggled in their first 12 months or in their first couple of years in terms of popularity. So, like, I think he follows the polls, has a good understanding of them. This seems like political showmanship, though, and not wanting to kind of admit that he might have a problem with independent voters.
0: That's the other interesting thing about the question is Biden could have had a pretty rote political answer to that question. He could have said, we're working on, he said at other parts in the press conference, we're working on inflation. It's like as simple as we're going to deliver for the American people
2: and, you know, then they'll vote for us as a result.
0: Yeah, exactly. But the truer answer is probably like whether independents approve, whether independents and everyone else approve of Biden is mostly not within Biden's control, which is I think what he was kind of getting at in referencing other presidents who in recent history who have like had this sort of first term downtrend. But he obviously he didn't go anywhere near that either. He just kind of discounted the polls.
3: He sort of went for I think, a, a succinct answer that goes against everything that we view when it comes to polls. You know, even if there are doubts about polling, We've written endlessly about how the polls are not suddenly just terrible and that the polling mist that people got worked up about in the 2020 election wasn't really that large in the grand scheme of things. It wasn't so totally out of kilter with past polling error. We've written about issue polling and trying to understand that, you know, with issue polling and trying to gauge, you know, whether people support a certain policy or have their views on it can depend a lot on things like wording and that. Whether like sixty-eight percent think it or sixty-two percent think it is not actually that big of a deal uh, in the grand scheme of things. And trying to understand the public's views about a certain issue, that's why we could say pretty confidently right now that Biden's approval rating is not going so well because you know it's in, his approval ratings in the low forties and his disapproval rating is in the low fifties, and that's like a large enough gap that, regardless of what you think about the accuracy of polling right now, is is too large to wave away. So, you know, his answer is from the
0: perspective of, you know, the value of polling is just sort of dumb, frankly. I do think it's not just about polling, you know, to compare Biden's relationship with truth and evidence to Trump's relationship with truth and evidence and reality. I don't think there's much of a comparison there. But in the wake of Trump, I do think everyone else in the world has an extra responsibility to not add to that willingness to just discount reality when you don't like it. And Biden, I feel confident in saying, does know better.
1: Yeah, there's so many choice quotes from Trump on the subject of how much to trust the media or polls. But there was one where he said, you know, if it's bad, I I say it's fake. If it's good, I say it, that's the most accurate poll ever. (laughs) Like Biden clearly didn't do that. But as Micah is saying, you know, that's the context in which he is then saying, I don't believe in the polls. And as we've written about you know, at the site, distrust in institutions from polling to universities to the CDC are at historic lows. And so it does seem as if, you know, if Biden's not necessarily pouring as much gasoline on the fire, he's still contributing to the spark and to the underlying furor that has gripped this country around trust and what we can believe in.
2: I have a question here for someone at home watching the press conference or someone who reads about it after the fact. They might be thinking, okay, well, it's been proven to us two election cycle presidential election cycles in a row that the polls can be off. So, you know, like maybe it is fair to question the polls. Like the polls aren't as simple as like one plus one equals two, yada, yada, yada. There's a difference between like questioning polling accuracy. and saying that COVID isn't real or vaccines don't work. You know what I mean? Like, is there some flexibility there to be like, I'm not really sure about the polls. Like, it's an inexact metric or whatever. There's polling error. And there has been high-profile polling error. Like, I have some questions. So maybe, like, whether Biden knows better or not, should the public be thinking of polling as, as straightforward as vaccines work or one plus one equals two?
0: No, but that's the point, right? I think like our big gripe as 538ers with much of the public discourse over polling is it's presented as binary. Either polls are perfectly exact and you should live your life by them, or polling is totally useless and fake and you should never pay attention to them. And of course, the reality is neither of those are true. The reality is, Polls are our best tool for measuring public opinion, but are inexact. And you, the audience, you, an American citizen, you know, an American resident, anyone interested in our country's interests and the public will and politics should absolutely come to polls with a skeptical eye and with an inquisitive mind and wonder, how is this poll conducted? What does it really tell me? There's a difference between that and what Biden did, though. Yeah, and, and that difference is an important one where his answer, I think, gets in the way of that more nuanced, skeptical use of polling, where it just feeds this, oh, they're either perfect or they're useless, obviously in the useless category. And that's just not true. Wrapping up here, he
2: didn't give us an answer to the question asked. But how important is the answer to that question to Democrats' path forward, Biden's presidency or legacy, are having independents and moderates, which are, it's complicated, those aren't the same thing, but are having those people in his corner fundamental to Democrats' path forward?
3: Well, I think with independents, it's always complicated, as you say, because most independents lean toward one party or the other. So, you know, right now, most of the independents who approve of Biden probably lean toward the Democrats, and then the much larger share of independents who disapprove are either Republican leaning or maybe true blue, you know, independents um, who actually don't lean toward one party or the other. I would say that for Biden and for Democrats heading into the midterm election, that it would certainly be better for them if a larger share of these voters, independent voters were supportive of Biden, approved of his performance, because those are the voters who are, in the grand scheme of things, at least somewhat more likely to maybe flip their vote. Like maybe a lot of them voted for Biden in 2020, but some of those voters, especially that small group in the middle, if they're engaged and might show up in the midterm election, they might vote for a Republican uh, this time for their local House race or a Senate race or what have you. Um, And that gets at one of the major reasons why we consistently see the president's party struggle in a midterm election, and that's because of this idea of the presidential penalty And it's that the party that's in the White House, some voters who voted for them in the previous election, in that presidential election, flip to the other party in the ensuing midterm. And so the more popular Biden is with those types of voters maybe the smaller that share of voters who who flip might be. And so that's sort of how I view it as being important to Biden and Democrats' future. I will say that I don't think any of this can tell us about his chances if he does run for re-election in 2024. I think we're way, way too far away from there at this point to say much
2: about that. All right. Well, you all confirmed it at the top. This gets a bad use of polling rating. Let's move on and talk about why high-profile politicians defect from their parties. But first, Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Last week, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pushed forward a vote on changing the rules of the filibuster, setting up Senators Mansion and Sinema for high-profile breaks with the Democratic Party. It was reminiscent of Senators McCain, Murkowski, and Collins all voting against the repeal of the ACA after the GOP campaigned on its repeal for four election cycles. Of course, the substance of the legislation is very different, but for members of both parties, it was a significant betrayal. So Let's talk about this. And I want to start off with this broader question. Jeff, how common is it for politicians to break with their parties on legislation like this?
3: Well, I mean, I think in our current political environment, you tend to see higher degrees of party unity. And I think that comes down in part to the fact that the parties are more consistent across the board. Like your average Democrat from state A and your average Democrat from state B are more likely to sort of view things similarly than say 50 years ago, when you might've had a conservative Democrat from the South and a more liberal Democrat from the Northeast or, or what have you. I and mean, we saw those differences in both parties. So both parties now are more ideologically cohesive. And so that tends to lead to greater party unity on various votes. And it sort of gets in line with the idea that of like having parliamentary parties where you know, In a parliamentary system, the party that's in power usually votes pretty much as a block for whatever the legislation is that the government backs. And we've been trending sort of in that direction. We're not, we're not there by any means, but that's sort of the direction things have trended. So I would say that it is more unusual now in a broad sense than maybe it was in the recent but still somewhat distant past today.
1: Right, earlier this year, we analyzed, at least in the House, how commonly Democrats voted together. And what we found is they were really unified in backing Biden's agenda. And if you look at our Biden score metric, Despite a lot of the dissension we've seen among Manchin and cinema, you know, they vote more in favor of Biden's agenda than they vote against it. And some of that's a reflection of what's brought to the floor, right? If neither of them really like a bill, guess what? Democrats aren't going to vote on it. That said, though, you know, the Senate more so than the House kind of has a history of senators getting to go rogue, whether that's because of their own views, something that represents their constituents. Or for the sake of bipartisanship. But you know, as Lee Drutman wrote for 538 last year, bipartisanship, what we're seeing, at least as Manchin and cinema define it, is kind of a dying mechanism within the Senate, as Jeffrey was getting at. You know, the parties are just, it's less common to have senators of different parties represent the same state. So what we're seeing is less disunity among the parties, less breaking with the parties. But I think in the Senate more than the House, just given the final throws it seems to be in, in terms of having split state representation, which I think, you know, in our lifetime here, maybe we'll be in a situation where whoever that state voted for president is also you know, at the Senate level who represents them in Congress. I could see that there's right now, I believe, six senators where there's a mismatch. And you could imagine a future where that is zero.
2: So that's some of the broader context in that party unity is increasing when it comes to how people vote in the legislature. But at the same time, when you look at the past couple decades, there are these examples, very high-profile examples of individual senators kind of stymieing the party's much broader legislative agenda or priorities. You know, people that I've mentioned, maybe one of the most high-profile cases or the most high-profile case during the Obama years was Joe Lieberman. And then, of course, in the House today, perhaps really high-profile examples are Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney blocking their entire party on the January 6th committee. So you do have still these like very high-profile examples, and maybe we pay attention to them even more because there is so much party unity. Why does this happen?
0: I think we should answer that in general terms rather than specifically for why is Manchin doing what he's doing, why is Cinema or why did Lieberman do, or why is Cheney, you know? So in general, I think the factors that might cause someone to break with their party are their beliefs— truly held beliefs. I'm sort of cynical about that one, but let's start there. Maybe it is what they really believe. Two, electoral calculus. What do they think is best for their own kind of electoral future? And more generally, maybe this overlaps with that, but I'd add sort of separately a political calculus. Where do they think, not just in terms of winning re-election, but politically, what's going to set them best up for the future? I'd also add in there like interest groups and donors and that kind of thing. People are human. They succumb to pressure from their peers, from people trying to lobby them, from people donating to their campaign. If they're thinking about having a career beyond elected office, that might factor in. If I, you know, after my time at 538, eventually want to be CEO of IBM, will that influence my willingness to assign a story that's critical of IBM right now. Well, I'd like to think not, but you know, who's to say?
2: Best of luck, Michael. To be
0: clear, I don't want to be CEO. <laughs> I don't want to be CEO of IBM. I just made that up. I think those are the major ones, right? Maybe I'd add like one other fourth one which is just like personality. I think some people like to throw a wrench in the gears. I think some people like to have that power and be in the spotlight. So, Micah, that's pretty cynical. I mean, not all of those are cynical necessarily, but
2: do Sarah and Jeff, do you agree? Because like I personally looking at some of these high profile cases wouldn't necessarily background just strongly held beliefs. It kind of seems like why else would these people be doing what they're doing if it's not for strongly held beliefs? But Sarah and Jeff, what do you think?
1: Politics is cynical, man. You know, it's obviously we're not inside Mansions' head. We're not inside cinemas. It is hard to speak to underlying motivations. I do think, though, for both of them, it is this mishmash of firmly held beliefs. Like, you don't write an op-ed about what you think the filibuster role should be and the threat of bipartisanship if you don't believe that. You can argue maybe that Carve outs have already happened. Maybe Mansion in a state as white as West Virginia doesn't fully understand the ramifications of voting restrictions being passed. But I do think he and Cinema genuinely believe in the value of what they're doing for bipartisanship. That said, though, there's also electoral ramifications. I think cinemas are a little less clear cut because Arizona is very much a purplish state. And taking such a maverick, John McCain esque approach might not really be as politically violent. She also, you know, used to have more of a progressive background. What is the 180 there? A lot of the coverage seems to be, you know, she's power hungry. She's doing it for personal ambition. Is that because she's a woman? And then Manchin, you know, it's just like for him, he's in a state where, honestly, as a Democrat, he should not be in office. But it's because of his personal brand of politics, having been governor, being left over from a long era of Democrats in the state. You know, if and when he retires, it's unlikely that another Democrat wins that Senate race, right? At least given where West Virginia's politics currently lie. And so I think for the both of them, at least, you know, it is this mismatch of, truly believing in this idea of bipartisanship and also thinking about the electoral ramifications.
0: It's also like, look, they're human. It's it's hard to separate those things. When you yourself are subject to certain incentives and interests, you end up constructing beliefs that align with those interests oftentimes. So Manchin has an electoral interest in bucking the Democratic Party, right? It's part of his personal brand of politics. As Sarah said, West Virginia is a very red state. So it's within his political and electoral interest. Does that mean he doesn't also believe that we should keep the filibuster in its current form, et cetera, et cetera? Well, he might also truly, deeply believe that. Now, does he believe that in part because it's in his interest to believe that? Maybe. You know, obviously, I don't know in the specific case of Manchin, but I do know that generally, like, motivated reasoning is a thing, right? And people sort of construct arguments that make them feel the most comfortable, basically. Who knows what's going to happen with Manchin and Cinema, and we can talk
2: about that. But oftentimes with these kinds of politicians, they get themselves into pretty hot water. Murkowski was challenged from the right in 2010. She lost her primary she did run as a right in candidate. That's why she's still in the Senate. Liz Cheney being challenged from, I guess, the right or the more Trumpy side of the party in Wyoming. Adam Kinzinger retiring. Joe Lieberman, primaried, lost his primary, won as an independent. So oftentimes the people that take this path get punished for it by their party. So it seems like there has to be something more than electoral calculus going on, question mark? And maybe are these are all bad examples because these people just ran as independents or write-ins and, and still maintained their position and maybe became even stronger as a result of it.
1: Taking your example of Lieberbin and Murkowski, they both suffered consequences, but their maneuvers kind of made sense within their state. So like. Connecticut had just kind of pivoted in Lieberman's lifetime from being maybe more friendly towards Republicans to friendly towards Democrats, but still like a more moderate brand of politics, right? So when he ran as an independent, then it was like his Democratic challenger was a little too progressive. Republicans realized their candidate wasn't going to win statewide. Lieberman made sense. Similarly, you know, Alaska is a deep red state, but it has a history, at least, of being a little bit more independent, oriented and a streak there and I think Murkowski benefited from that. She also was obviously a brand name in the state thanks to her father's political career before her. And so maybe cinema, for instance, let's say you know polls right now show that Democrats in Arizona are super unhappy with her. So maybe she gets primaried and maybe she loses. Does she run as an independent then and that kind of holds more appeal in the state? In Arizona in particular, as we've covered at the site, there's been a huge push there around the big lie to change how voting is working there. And so maybe depending on who Republicans field as a candidate, that opens up an avenue for an independent, maybe just the Republican wins. I think it's a little less clear for Manchin and if he were primary, just because West Virginia is such a red state. But it does seem as if it's that kind of indecipherable, unanswerable blend of what they're doing electorically and politically and how they're motivated by that. And then also just what they seem to think is right. I think both are at play here and it's really hard to kind of parse out which one is leading them more on this issue.
0: It's easier when the person bucking their party is also bucking their immediate political interests. It's easier to at least entertain the possibility that they might be doing it for like sincerely held beliefs. So, in the case of cinema and Manchin, actually, all else being equal, you would think that it's more likely cinema is doing what she's doing for sincerely held beliefs than Manchin, because Manchin, it's clearly in his political interest to do what he's doing. Cinema, it's much less clear. As Sarah was saying, you know, she might be primaried. Maybe she can win as an independent. Maybe not. Who's to say? But When they seem to be acting against their political interest, it raises the likelihood that they're acting out of sincerely held beliefs. Even then, though, there's other things that could be motivating them, career prospects, donors, all kinds of stuff. So I don't mean to be too cynical, but I think uh, a certain level of cynicism has been earned by American politicians. Yeah, I mean look,
3: I think with Cinnamon Mansion, part of it is that from the get-go, they sort of put out there that they weren't going to be willing to change the filibuster rules. And now with things sort of coming to a head on voting rights legislation, I just don't think that they feel they have wiggle room. Like they've said that they favor, you know, to some extent the the voting rights legislation. But the act of changing the filibuster in some way is something where they they kind of put themselves out there from the get-go in this current Congress that they weren't going to be willing to, to make changes to it. And it's sort of, I think for them to go back on that after having put themselves out there in that way is challenging. You know, we're used to politicians maybe shifting when it's convenient or when it seems convenient for them. But in this case, maybe it's sort of as a part of their brand, their independent brand within their states, which is part of their political appeal. Maybe they still feel like they can backtrack on that,
2: given what they've already said. So looking at some of these past examples, include John McCain in all of this. He branded himself as a maverick and it got him all the way to the Republican nomination. What do you think this all means for Manchin and Cinema going forward? Do you think that they're likely to lose primaries in their states? And if so, like, are Americans up for more independence? I
3: mean, I would be kind of surprised that if Manchin does run again, and I'm not sure he will run again, I am skeptical that he would lose a primary. I think West Virginia, in terms of finding a figure in West Virginia to take him on who would be able to build enough support to defeat Manchin, it's hard because there's basically no Democratic bench in West Virginia. The state has become very, very Republican very quickly. There were conservative Democrats out there who have left the party, who are now Republicans, and it's just not an obvious person. In Arizona, on the other hand, when you're thinking about a primary challenge to Sinema, it's much easier to come up with a scenario where that happens and where she's maybe in real trouble because there are notable Democrats like a, a Ruben Gallego or a Greg Stanton, who are high profile. Stanton was mayor of Phoenix before he got into the House. Gallego has already been rumored as a potential primary opponent for cinema, and is also in the House. I mean, so you can kind of immediately come up with names, right, who could potentially build a big campaign to take on a sitting member of the Senate if she also seeks re-election, which maybe given her behavior, she's not planning on seeking re-election. But again, this is very much like speculative at this point. But I think you could definitely see an easier path to her losing renomination than Manchin.
1: Yeah, I mean, cinema is just a lot more unpopular with Democratic voters. Public policy polling commissioned a poll earlier this year, and they found that only 15% of Democrats had a favorable opinion of her. Now, to be clear, Manchin was underwater with Democrats as well, but 42% still had a favorable opinion. So it just goes to show, I think, as Jeffrey was saying, there's just not a bench in West Virginia. And by default, Manchin has kind of sway there. I'm curious, honestly, if he runs again for election. Emma, there's been so much speculation that she is, you know, trying to do all of this to build her brand for a presidential run. And I'm just like, did you not see what happened with Tulsi Gabbard in the Democrat? <laughs> like, is she not going to run as a Democrat? And now maybe that's the answer, because I don't understand how in a Democratic primary she would go on to have great success, particularly when like in her own state. And again, Arizona, purplish state, but Democrats there are so upset with her. It's hard to see the political machinations that are going on there and how it works in her favor.
2: Well. Sarah, maybe in the kind of legacy of Murkowski and Lieberman, if you look at her favorable numbers amongst Republicans and independents in that poll, actually, she's at 57% favorability with Republicans and 56% favorability with independents. So I don't know. That looks like perhaps the political coalition of someone who doesn't maybe stick with the party, but pursues an independent path. I don't know.
1: And I could see that maybe in Arizona. Again, I think there's a lot of questions around, well, who do they run as a Republican senator? Is it someone like Ducey, a little bit more moderate in the party? Or is it somebody who fully embraces kind of like the Trumpist strain within the party? I think that's a big question. It's less clear to me, though, like on the national stage, because I think in that instance, it's kind of like, At least historically speaking, most Democrats are going to rally behind whoever the Democratic nominee is. Most Republicans are going to rally behind whoever their nominee is. You know, maybe she's the next Ross Perot. I don't know. But (laughs) it seems a little far-fetched for that to be the strategy.
0: And even then, no electoral votes anyway. Right. And just to add to what Sarah's saying, I think she's right to draw a distinction between Arizona and the national stage. Could Cinema win as an independent in Arizona? Sure, that seems possible. It seems more difficult to me. Let's say, just for the sake of argument, cinema doesn't have have any sincerely held beliefs. It's just all <laughs> political motive, electoral motive. I'm not saying that's true, but just yeah, yeah, yeah. just to play this out, would it be easier for cinema to win re-election, basically towing the Democratic Party line for the most part, like other? More centrist Democrats, not getting out on the Democratic left flank, but sticking with the party, you know, at its innermost right flank, right? Or would it be easier for her to win re election doing what she's doing, which is going one step further, bucking the party on its sort of key pillars and win as an independent? The latter seems harder to me. So that's why I think some. Other factor is at play here, sincerely held beliefs, other career motivations, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Nationally, there was some reporting that cinema has this idea that people want bipartisanship, she's creating this bipartisan brand, and that there will be an appetite for that nationally speaking. My problem with that is like. That is true as far as it goes. That's how Biden won, right? Biden was among the more moderate Democrats running in the Democratic primary in 2020. And he beat Trump. He didn't blow out Trump, but he beat him clearly running as as a... A uniter, not a divider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the problem there, though, for cinema is... Biden ran as all of that, but as a mainstream Democrat, and I think cinema has gone a little beyond that. I mean, case in point: this is Biden's agenda, right? And he ran as that cross-party appeal unifier, et cetera. So I don't know; it's it's a little confusing.
3: I think if cinema actually is intending on running for reelection as like an independent or something that, you know, that could get too cute by half, because I think generally speaking, when you see independent success in a Senate election, it's usually because one of the major party candidates either is practically non-existent or just doesn't have very much support. So I think the problem for her is that a lot of Democrats would be backing a Democrat mm-hmm. nominee And I don't think, even though she does have high favorability among Republicans, that Republicans are going to just sort of uh, let her continue on. Unless, I mean, you know, you can't write off anything entirely. But I just, I could imagine her being in a very close, like, three way race where you know, maybe she ends up actually finishing third in that scenario because the party support is behind the two major party nominees. So I, I just think it's challenging to plan on that working for you.
2: Yeah. It's kind of like you're lucky if it works, but that's not usually the career path you chart for yourself. So wrapping this all up, how much power do these idiosyncratic politicians have? Manchin, Cinema, Collins, Murkowski, McCain, to some extent, Romney, Lieberman, Liz Cheney, how much power do they have and and what impact do they have ultimately on our politics?
1: A lot.
0: <laughs> a ton, yeah. Are you kidding me? I mean, in worlds where like in our current world where the Senate is 50-50, Mansion and Cinema and like, theoretically any single senator has all the power in the world. I mean, I, before Biden was inaugurated, there was a lot of talk about like President Mansion, President Mansion. Honestly, I was like kind of skeptical of that. You know, Manchin had stuck with the party on impeachment, for example. So I I don't know. I was just skeptical. Maybe I didn't have good reasons, but I was wrong. Like Manchin, Cinema, they have an incredible amount of power and that's been shown out. They've stalled big, big chunks of Biden's agenda. How much power does Cheney have in the House? That's a little different. And I think circumstances matter a lot. I don't. Cheney doesn't have much power in the House, I don't think.
1: That's true. I do think the circumstances of this matter a lot. It's clear cut in the Senate because Democrats' majority there is so slim that they have to have both Mansion and Cinema, And it's why, you know, right, like, you know, they're spending as much time in Congress as they are being courted in the White House, Whereas it's very different calculus for Republicans who have broken with the party in the House or honestly, you know, oftentimes I feel like the drama of this is a little more subdued in the House, just given normally the margins are not quite so narrow and coalitions are a bit easier to build.
3: Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that. We're in a particular context here where both chambers have very, very narrow majorities. You know, Democrats have the narrowest possible majority in the Senate, and then you know, single-digit seat margin advantage in the House. So these are circumstances where party unity is especially important because to pass anything, you have to have the party mostly unified. And you know, we see that on a lot of these votes where basically almost all Democrats and in a lot of cases all Republicans vote one way or the other, but. With such narrow majorities, when you have this case, especially in the Senate, where you have a couple who are voting against the rest of their party, you can see just how important being idiosyncratic can be. Um, and we, you know, we saw this with the attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act, with John McCain walking in and do, you know, famously doing thumbs, thumbs down, down. You know, so a lot can hang on this behavior in a closely divided chamber.
2: Yeah, who knows? Maybe that's a reason enough to find yourself in the middle as an idiosyncratic politician in, like, a closely divided country. That's where all the power
1: is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point.
2: Anyway, as was made clear, we don't know what's inside these politicians' heads, but uh, interesting to discuss. Let's move on and talk about a whole other kind of politician, the non-politician. But first...
1: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer...
2: People like Dr. Oz, Herschel Walker, or, of course, Donald Trump put a face to the phenomenon of amateur candidates running for high-profile federal office. But the trend started before them. Since 2008, there's been an uptick in candidates running and winning House primaries who never previously held elected office. The trend began with Republicans, but in 2018, Democrats started electing more amateur candidates as well. Jeffrey, you have been doing a bunch of reporting on this, why it's happening, its impacts on governance. So let's talk about it. First off, let's define our terms. Jeff, what counts as an amateur candidate?
3: Yeah, so in this context, uh, when we say amateur candidate, we mean someone who doesn't have any elected experience. They've never been elected to you know, an office. They never have been elected to the state legislature, never been elected mayor or to city council. So if you're thinking about traditional view and political science, it had long been thought that quality candidates, that is people who had been elected to office previously, when they would go run for the U.S. House, they tended to do better than candidates who had no elected experience. And see, basically what we're picking up now is that there is less of a notable difference between that sort of quality
2: candidate versus the inexperienced candidate. Now it's they're running much more evenly. So both Candidates with previous elected experience and candidates who have none of it are winning at the same rate, basically.
3: Yeah. And the place where you can really see this is when you do focus on... House seats, obviously, the U.S. House has, gives you a larger sample size, there's a lot, 435 seats. But if you look at the ones where there's no incumbent running, because incumbents of all stripes, they tend to win. So if you're trying to pick out electoral experience, whether it matters, they're not. that's not going to tell you much. So you look at the ones where there's no incumbent running, and you see who's winning the primaries in those races for the Democrats and the Republicans. And what we're seeing is that roughly a 50-50 split in both parties uh, between inexperienced candidates and experienced candidates winning nominations in those races.
2: So in that instance, we don't see a difference between the two parties. Vox did an analysis where they tried to break down types of quote-unquote amateur candidates where there's like true amateurs and preferred amateurs. And preferred amateurs means lawyers, educators, government aides, people who've worked in the military, been appointed to some position, business professionals, versus true amateurs who have basically no experience with public service, social service, whatever. And they said that when you break it down like that, then you do see a difference in terms of Republicans and Democrats. Do you think that's like a fair comparison to make when trying to analyze this phenomenon?
3: Well, I mean, I think it could tell you about some differences between what the parties value. The Uber example is, of course, Donald Trump. But you do tend to see Republicans are more likely to nominate uh, someone whose background is business or military or something where they weren't necessarily serving in government, whereas Democrats might be more likely to nominate someone who's a lawyer but hasn't held office before, someone who's been like a political aide or has been an appointed official in some governmental uh, you know, bureaucracy, for instance. So I think that can tell you a little bit about what the two parties value. I think that's sort of indicative of Republicans, when they want an outsider, they tend to go for someone who really is truly outside. Whereas Democrats, they do nominate plenty of outsiders who have no previous connection to any sort of political experience, even if it's not elected. But they do tend to to nominate a fair number of people who at least have some connection to government or politics. So I think it's just a way of picking up on a difference. I think it is worth noting, though, that basically what I should say is that the research on this is that candidates that do have that experience with politics and government, they don't actually necessarily perform better. Which you might think because of that, that they would perform better in primaries, but they don't over candidates who don't even have that sort of experience.
0: Yeah, I was, I was going to say, isn't that Vox analysis also pre-2018? Because according to our analysis, there was an uptick in Republicans sort of electing inexperienced candidates before there was an uptick for Democrats. And that uptick for Democrats came in 2018 and 2020, that's not to say if you redid that analysis now, it wouldn't still hold true. But I do agree with Jeff that that doesn't say much about sort of effectiveness. I, there is research, as Jeff wrote, that people with elected experience are more effective legislators. Once you get beyond that, you know, does being a lawyer versus being in the military equip one or the other better to serve as a representative? I don't think that's like a claim anyone here is trying to make, right? I, I think it's more just have you been in elected office? Have you not been in elected office? Beyond that, it's what Jeff says, It's just more about the demographics of the parties, the values of the parties, that kind of thing.
1: One thing I found in their research that I thought was really interesting, but also is kind of challenging to track, though, is this increase among candidates with no experience, but also a strong anti-establishment strain running. And I think that is kind of what to some extent, we're conflating more on the Republican side because there's just more prominent examples, right? Like Marianne Williamson didn't win the Democratic primary. Nicholas Kristof isn't going to run in Oregon. And I realize I I don't even think it's Accurate to kind of frame him as anti establishmentarianism, just more so like a very untraditional democratic background running, right? But that really stood out to me from Jeffrey's piece and his research was just that kind of strain has become more potent among voters in the sense that they're really attracted to the outsider candidate, especially when they also have anti establishment rhetoric.
2: So across the aisle, we see this trend happening. Maybe there's differences stylistically, but as far as what we've tracked here at 5:38, it's across the board. So maybe the interesting question is why? Why are candidates who have no experience running and why are voters voting for them?
3: Right. So, you know, I should say that I spoke to two political scientists at the University of North Carolina, Sarah Truel and Rachel Porter, who have done a ton of work on this. And, you know, they pointed to a, a few different things. One of them was getting at what Sarah was talking about, which is that maybe people are very dissatisfied with institutions and the appeal of sort of an anti-establishment rhetoric from candidates and candidates who don't have a background as an elected official may make them more attractive to voters. So that's something that's there. There's also, as so often with uh, campaigns, there's where's the money coming from? And One of the things that they found was that candidates who didn't have any elected experience were having an easier time getting donations, either from individual donors or from uh, outside groups, uh, particularly ideologically motivated groups. They're donating a lot more to those types of candidates than they once did. So a lot of that, I think, can tie back to the general theme that we often touch on in this podcast, which is weakened political parties. The political party apparatus just has a lot less say in who is going to be a candidate and who like maybe breaks out in a primary because outside groups just have more power than they used to. And that money is a big part of it as well. And candidates of any stripe because of the internet have a very easy time getting donations from all, you know, everywhere. You just have a viral video and you could raise millions of dollars, you know, on Twitter. So those forces uh, have, I think, made it easier for this type of candidate to succeed and made it more attractive to run in the first place.
0: And in the immortal words of 538 contributor Giulio Zari, weak parties, strong partisanship. So everything Jeff just said. Then add to that the fact that in most blue states, the Democrat is going to win almost no matter what. In most red states, the Republican is going to win almost no matter what. In other words, there aren't a lot of races where you have two candidates running and let's say one of them comes out of left field, has no elected experience and voters are going to be, let's say it's in a blue state and Democratic voters are going to be like, yes, that person is a Democrat, but I don't really think they have the experience to be in elected office. I'm going to vote for the Republican. That just is not going to happen in modern politics with any frequency. So it's weak parties, strong polarization, strong partisanship is a good recipe for this. I do wonder, I'm curious what you guys think, the extent to which anti-establishmentarianism is that the word? That is the word, right?
1: I think so. I struggle. I struggle to pronounce it. <laughs> I
0: love how much play that word is getting during
2: this podcast. Isn't that like the long, like the longest word or something? I don't know. In, in the some, English language? Some, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Please help us find a pithier way to say that.
2: Anti-disestablishmentarianism. Not anti-establishmentarianism. Isn't that the longest Wait, word in the English language? Yeah, I think that is the longest one. Yeah, that's, But anti-establishmentarianism is <laughs> still a word, right? Or is it just <laughs>
0: anti-establishment sentiment? It just sounds like it has like, two syllables at the end that it doesn't need. In any case, I agree with Sarah. Somebody send us like a pithier word for that. You can just make it up. Make up a better word for that. Please. Um, I do wonder how much anti-establishmentarianism is a factor in this trend because as we were just discussing, I think you can explain a lot of the trend simply based on the weak parties, strong partisanship, polarization point. And what Jeff said about, you know, you have like act blue now where it's much easier to raise money. So conceptually, I totally get it. It makes sense to ascribe some of this trend to that kind of anti-establishment movement in American politics. But I do wonder how much it's playing a role and whether it's whether it's different by party, as Sarah was getting at, like you would think it'd be more in the GOP than the Democratic Party.
2: Okay, so you saw an uptick amongst Democrats voting for these quote unquote amateur candidates in primaries in 2018. I think oftentimes when you run in a district where your party doesn't have a lock, you want someone who doesn't really have strong ties to the party so that they can frustrate partisan identity, which is why, I mean, you remember like all the people who had military experience running in reddish or purplish districts in 2018, they don't even ever really say that they're Democrats. At the end, they just say, you know, like I'm Amy McGrath for Congress or whatever, instead of saying like Amy McGrath, Democrat for Congress. So it's like maybe in these stretch districts or areas where you want to downplay your partisan identity is where that's most effective?
3: Well, I think that's true to some extent, but that's really honing in on competitive seats. It's like if you look at it, a, an open seat race, but one that's in a safe district for one party or the other, um, there's still, I would say, a greater likelihood now of the party opting for somebody who mm. uh, doesn't have any elected experience. Um, so I think you're exactly right that in a competitive seat, that profile can work, but I think it can also work in a seat that's safe for your party. I mean, you know, it could be an activist on some issue on the left uh, winning the nomination in a a democratic seat or a business person or, or a right wing activist in a conservative Republican leaning seat. I think you're seeing it kind of across the board to some extent.
1: Yeah. I think the squad and the left part of the Democratic Party is a great example of a different strain of anti-establishmentarianism. You know, I'm not saying that someone like Cory Bush is similar to Madison Cawthorn, but they are related in the sense of, like, no prior political experience wanting to shake up the system. And I think just given where Americans are in distrust of, you know, our institutions, politicians, there's an appetite. I think it's expressed in very, very different ways, but among Republican voters, among Democratic voters, to kind of see something that's different. And I think that's reflected here. You know, one thing that Jeffrey touches on in his piece, too, that is like an upside of this is that more experienced candidates, particularly within the Democratic Party, but also the Republican Party, that, you know, it was the year of the woman for them in 2020, but it has led to more diversity within Congress, um, particularly the House. And so that's one upside of this. And I think as Micah was getting at, it's easy to conflate all of this kind of under the anti-establishmentarianism umbrella. And I think that's probably, as Jeffrey kind of notes in his article, not the only factor here. But I think it is one, given where our politics are, that deserves more study.
2: You said that one of the effects of this trend is more diversity in Congress, in political office. What are the other effects of having more amateurs as legislators?
0: I was going to say there is part of this that's like a, a reinforcing cycle, where I think a lot of voters look at Washington and don't think the people there are really doing anything effectively or or to help them in their day-to-day lives, whether that's true or not. Let's put that aside for a second. There's certainly a lot of people in the country who feel that way and who therefore feel, why do I need someone with elected experience? The people with elected experience who are already there aren't doing a good job. Let me throw somebody out of left field in there, right? Certainly we saw a lot of that, at least conversation, in 2016 when Trump is elected. But research does show that people without elected experience are less effective legislators. And so if you throw more inexperienced people into Washington, it becomes even less effective. Then voters have all the more reason to be like, it's not effective, who cares who we send there? You know, and it kind of feeds back in on itself. We call that a lose-lose scenario.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's just the potential for a negative feedback. <laughs> Loop And, you know, the political scientists I spoke with, you know, they said that was a real concern. So there could be this benefit of people who have traditional trouble winning uh, some of those stepping stone offices, like a state legislative position, you know, women and minorities particularly, so maybe they can get greater access. And so this is a benefit of maybe not needing as much elected experience to, to get into, you know, Congress. But on the flip side, if you get more and more people who are inexperienced trying to govern... That may make our already struggling federal government even less effective uh, at doing its job. And so there can be this negative feedback loop where voters frustrated by the status quo continue to turn to people who don't have experience legislating. And then those people get to Washington and just make things worse. And one of the things that they also pointed out to me was that some of those members uh, that they're electing um, who are outsiders, they may not really have much interest in doing much legislating anyway. You know, I think you can see that with someone like a Marjorie Taylor Greene. Do her constituents really care that she's on committee A or B or that she got kicked off of some committees uh, for things she said? I think they wanted her to get in there and, and
0: sort of shake things up. And in their view, she's shaking things up. So I think that actually is is probably the most important part of this, which is there are plenty of politicians and candidates with elected experience and without elected experience who Want to get into government to do something, you know, legislatively, let's say, if we're talking about Congress, or just more generally to do something. But there are also a lot of people who don't, who want to get into the office because they think it's a nice gig, because they like the attention, because it's good money, whatever the reason. I think we have seen not only an increase in the number of uh, elected officials who don't have previous experience but also an increase in the number of elected officials who don't have any interest in governing, really. And that's not why they're there. And those are two overlapping but separate trends. Well, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> Let's end on that glum note, please.
3: Yeah, it's not a really like reassuring trend. Because actually one of the things that I, I note in the article is that you see an increase in the share of freshman in congress who don't have any previous elected experience and it's basically like if that keeps up over the next few cycles and a lot of those freshmen stick around that just means that the the overall percentage of people in congress who who when they came to congress had some sort of background in elected experience will get smaller and you know could create a more amateurish congress frankly
2: All right. Well, we will keep an eye on this. Of course, in this coming cycle, we will see if the next senator from Pennsylvania is Dr. Oz or the next senator from Georgia is Herschel Walker. I'm sure there are many more examples out there that we haven't kept as close of an eye on, but we will in this coming year and we will see what happens. But let's leave it there for now. Thank you, Jeff, Sarah, and Micah.
1: Thanks, Galen.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary Curtis is on audio editing. Emily Vinesky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.